Hello, everyone. Thank you for checking out this episode of Really Dicey. This is Manny. And I'm Matt. And today we're going to talk about Cults of Cthulhu by Chaosium. This book is over 360 pages. It is divided into seven chapters. The first four is lore, and the last three are three adventures that can be linked together or played separately. This book opens up with a mature content warning. So these pages contain themes of coercion, abuse, violence, murder, assault, moral corruption, and sexual activity. Certain cults of today and historically are horrifying, let alone what's in this book. So make sure you have that session zero with your players. Yeah. Yep. Good point. Good point. This is uh, really hardcore stuff. Um, beautiful book. Yes. Um, as most things that they put, all the books that they put out, uh, really um, gorgeous to look at, some wonderful art. One of the things I loved straight up about this book is that it had interesting game, gaming fiction. I don't, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but I tend not to like the gaming fiction that you find in gaming books. I, I don't know why. It's just usually of a pretty poor quality, and I usually skip over it. Uh, just as a pet peeve, uh, I really hate it when they bury necessary rule mechanics or, or stuff you need for the game inside their second-rate fiction. But anyway, that doesn't matter because this fiction was actually really good. I actually really enjoyed reading this fiction. So another thing that I really loved about this book uh, was how closely tied it was to the source material. The Cthulhu cult, or possibly the Cthulhu or different cults, it's a little vague, are only really mentioned twice in Lovecraft's writing. We have the Call of Cthulhu, right? And we have Shadow of Rinsmith. And beyond that, there's just little hints. Um, but this big book really dives into that and pulls out all the information it can out of those two stories. Um, lots of this book is based directly on what a character in Call of Cthulhu tells us. There's, there's this member of the Louisiana swamp cult called Carlos, and he's interrogated, and he tells us our best information about the cult. And this book really pulls that apart for all it's worth and, and digs into it. But right away in the introduction, it tells you uh, that the mythos gods are incomprehensible. And which is great. I love that idea. Uh, I've seen all sorts of books kind of talk about the gods and what they want and what they're like. And they're like this and like that. And, and, and the truth is that, that according to the actual mythos, we don't know what the gods are like. They're incomprehensible. We cannot know. So, you know, the book says, well, how do you write for the gods? How do you write about Cthulhu? What does Cthulhu want? And their answer is, you don't. You don't write about Cthulhu. You write about Cthulhu cults. Because the cults are human, and the cultists are recognizably even painfully human. They have motivations that we can understand. So uh, right away, this book sets, sets the ground rules that it's going to be about the cults and not about Cthulhu, which is great. And it talks about, you know, there's a little bit about why you can use cults. Um, cults really shine in long campaigns you know, uh, where they can be slowly slowly uncovered and, uh, and the player, the investigators can match their wits about them. Then the book just dives right in. Uh, chapter one is the history of uh, Cthulhu worship. Uh, you've got 
the common beliefs that most of the cults across the world have. And then you have a timeline of Cthulhu worship starting all the way in 2000 BC and running up to 2017 AD. Great fiction, a lot of fun, lots of great story hooks. I mean, we're on chapter one and you've already got tons of stuff to play. I mean, just the introduction in chapter one is worth the price of admission. You can, there, there are dozens of stories you could tell right there. <laughs> chapter two, we get into sample cults. Uh, so they've got, they've got five cults that they really detail. Uh, you have the order of um, Morpheus, which is um, kind of a hellfire club. So kind of that it's, it's 19th century, but it's a lot like that, um, that actual uh, group of uh, 18th century British aristocrats who, who had too much time and money <laughs> and, you know, used to gather in, in caves and, and old uh, churches and stuff to get up to. Uh, they probably didn't get up to much besides, you know, drinking and, and drugs and things. But of course, this being called Cthulhu, these guys get up to some serious stuff. So they're a, they're a lot of fun. And uh, the next group you've got is the Louisiana Swamp Cult from Call of Cthulhu, so from, the, from the story. So they really kind of dive into who they are and how they operate. Next, you have a, a Society of the Angelic Ones. And this is in the 20s, and this kind of has a spiritualist sort of feel to it. This one really has a benign facade. So you've got the, the cult that's pretending to be good. <laughs> and then, of course, you have my personal favorite, the uh, Esoteric Order of Dagon, you know, from Shadow over Innsmouth. I love the EOD. That story is my favorite. It's super creepy, and it's just wonderful to hear new information about them. And the fifth one is a lawsuit waiting to happen. Uh, it's called the Church of Perfect Science, and it is basically Scientology. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm really surprised they did this, and and uh, hats off to them. It's a it's a church started by a, um, a second rate science fiction writer. It's very nefarious, and it's it's really very very interesting. The great thing, and and that's all that's your modern cult that that happens. That's a contemporary cult. The interesting thing about the uh, the Church of Perfect Science is that. Um, they're convinced that Cthulhu is going to rise and uh, take over the world. And for humanity to survive, it has to be transformed into something else. And so they're working to bring about that transformation so that humanity can survive. And the really creepy thing is that within the mythos, they may be right. Right? <laughs> because... Um, humanity may need to be changed to survive. Uh, now, you know, investigators can wonder, is it worth it? Uh, you know, do we want to live with what we have to change into? Or, and, um, you know, the, the church has already given up. They've said, ah, Cthulhu's going to rise. We just have to deal with it. Your, your investigators may not be willing to give up yet. They might think they can still stop uh, Cthulhu from rising. So, each one of these um, cults feels different. They did a wonderful job of presenting cults that um, look and operate differently. Uh, and they all have different story uh, hooks. 
and lots of uh, detailed information. This is um, this is chaosium, so uh, they really get into the weeds. You get how the groups are financed and how they're organized and how they recruit and all sorts of, you know, you also have, you have all the, the, the magical stuff, but you also have all the mundane stuff because a, a cult is a, an organization of mundane humans, or most of them. <laughs> so um, that's really very interesting. That's a great chapter. Uh, chapter three is how to do all this sort of stuff yourself. This is make your own cults, right? And uh, it picks up right off where what I was saying with the Church of uh, Perfect Science. The cults are right. <laughs> um, you know, in the world of Call of Cthulhu, um, the, the pleasant uh, beliefs that the vast majority of us have are lies. <laughs> Uh, there is uh, the mythos. There, there are these elder gods. They are going to do something. So it's the cults who are right, sort of. And it's the rest of us who are mistaken, which is really kind of scary and horrific part of the point. The cults, of course, are only partially right because, you know... Um, as we said before, the, the gods are incomprehensible. So the teachings of the cults are all twisted by their own perceptions. So the cults don't have any of the truth. They just have bits and pieces. So it's all very confusing, all very vague, all very horrific, all very Cthulhu. It's great. <laughs> so the chapter then goes on to uh, explain to us that the, the cultists not only are human, uh, but they can be well-meaning, ordinarily ordinary people. That they can be mistaken. They can be duped into this. At the lower levels, in a lot of these cults, they're trying to do the right thing. They're trying to help, uh, which should give your investigators pause before they shoot them. <laughs> so <laughs> that should make things a little more interesting. Um, of course, cult leaders, practically by definition, are evil and/or insane. They've, um, you know, this this book makes, of course, great use of the sanity mechanic. And you can see that the lower levels of a lot of the cults have, you know, good solid sanity. And then the higher they get, the lower sanity they get. And then the leaders often have no sanity at all. The book next talks about the uniqueness of the Cthulhu cult as opposed to the other cults that are in the mythos, like um, uh, Shabnigaroth or the witch's cult or all those other gods. Uh, and, and here again, they go right back to Castro's words from the Call of Cthulhu. They kind of break them down. Their goals are all different, but in general, the cults are trying to help Cthulhu rise uh, from his tomb uh, by different means and for different reasons. Um, the second thing they're usually trying to do is uh, they usually believe that humanity shall be transformed somehow. Uh, what that means, whether it's a physical transformation, whether it's a spiritual transformation, whether it's both, that can differ from cult to cult. Uh, also, is this going to happen naturally? Is Cthulhu going to do it? Or does the Church of Perfect Science have to do it, for instance? The third thing uh, you can get from Carlos's ramblings there. Castro, Castro, I'm sorry, I'm, I've been saying this the whole wrong. His name's Castro. 
Oh. <laughs> um, gonna come back and haunt me. <laughs> uh, anyway, so Castro, uh, he does a bunch of stuff. One of the things he says is that Cthulhu shall teach humanity new ways. He talks about new ways to revel and enjoy themselves. So what does that mean? What are those new ways? Um, a lot of people, you know, a lot of cults can interpret that new ways to be evil, right? Or new ways to expand beyond good and evil. But, you know, maybe it's maybe it's uh, a little more spiritual. Maybe it's some sort of enlightenment. Maybe it's moving beyond Euclidean space. We're not sure. And that's the fourth point they make. Um, Castro may, of course, be totally wrong because they found him dancing around the giant idol, you know, mumbling nonsense in the middle of the swamp. So he might not be a reliable narrator. <laughs> so, so, uh, so with all those things in mind, um, the book then gives you a step-by-step -step, uh, process to create a cult. You've got, uh, you've got half a dozen tables, you have examples, you have questions to, to ask yourself. Um, you can, uh, there, are, there are instructions for creating the leader of the cult, right? His motivations, his personality, his stats, his powers, that sort of thing. Uh, the goals of the cult, the, the structure of the cult, including things like finance and recruiting. Uh, then, the membership, who are the actual cultists? Um, how are they cared for? Do they still have their day jobs? How crazy are they? What do they believe? Uh, you have, of course, the supernatural elements of the cult. Uh, what kind of magic do they have? Um, how, you know, things like that. Uh, then, there's, uh, then there's a section on identifying the weaknesses of the cult. I, I think this is really important uh, because your investigators are going to be fighting the cult. And every cult um, will have some sort of weakness, whether it's based on internal strife, members of the cult are fighting against each other, or you know, maybe their finances are sloppy, or uh, maybe they don't believe in recruiting, so they have dwindling numbers. Uh, maybe they have a hard time tying up loose ends. I mean, some of these cults are much more organized than others. Uh, maybe they've made a lot of enemies. So there's all sorts of different ways for your cultist, um, for your investigator to, to, to um, you know, uh, investigate <laughs> the cult <laughs> and find little loose ends to pull on and weaknesses to follow up. So, uh, and to help you all out, there's flow charts and worksheets to put all this together. And then in, in chapter four, we have um, cultists, monsters, and artifacts. So you've got 12 different types of, um, uh, cultist archetypes, including criminals and law officers and priests. And then you have inhuman, most of these are human, but you also have inhuman cultists like, uh, you know, deep one hybrids and that sort of thing. Uh, you have 20 blessings of Cthulhu, which are uh, mutations and powers and things like, uh, you know, agelessness or gills or extra limbs vampirism, all sorts of crazy things. And there's some monsters that are mentioned in the text um, for you to throw in. And of course, some artifacts that have also been mentioned in the book. You know, all those idols they're always talking about, um, you know, hallucinogenic mushrooms, uh, crazy occult machines, new spells and that sort of thing. Finally, there's, um, they talk about the deathless masters. 
some of the stories, the Call of Cthulhu, mentions the Deathless Masters, and they're implied to be these global leaders of the, all the different Cthulhu cults. Are they pulling the strings? Are they coordinating all these uh, different cults towards a goal? What kind of goal are they? You know, the, so the book mentions who they might be. They might be humans. They might not be humans. Uh, they give you some of their possible powers, some of their game stats. You know, they're all kind of different samples are, are um, statted out for you. They talk about what their possible goals are. In, including one I really like, they they uh, they suggest the possibility that the, the Deathless Masters are opposed to Cthulhu Rising, because as it stands right now, they're the big fish in charge. So maybe they want to keep things as they are. They want to they're 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 in control of the cult and they make sure that they don't actually actually succeed. Um, and then again. Maybe there aren't any deathless masters. This is all left open to the keeper. You can you can play it the way you want to. It's a great book that gives you lots of different ideas and ways to implement them. And then, of course, we have some wonderful scenarios, which you read, Manny. Yes. <laughs> you have most of your sanities left, so tell us about them. <laughs> Ah, I fooled you too. Um, <laughs> well, before I talk a bit about the last three chapters, I do want to say that they are all excellent pieces of fiction. Uh, these tales are horrifying and disturbing. I can't imagine keepers not being thrilled at some of the scenarios in each adventure. And each adventure does a great job in trying to capture possible choices that investigator, investigators may make. Even some of the sections that are dead end story-wise are detailed out very well so that keepers can get the adventure back on track. I will do my best to be spoiler free, but don't be fooled <laughs> by the short synops synopsis I share about each story, for each one has lots of twists and turns that will make M. Knight jealous. And all three <laughs> adventures have cults connected to it in some way. Chapter 5, Loki's Gift. Uh, this story takes place in late 19th century London. The son of a wealthy man commits suicide throws himself out of a window three stories up. Lord Richard Gladstone wasn't very close to his son, but he always seemed happy, uh, and his suicide made no sense to him. And it's your job as investigators to find out what happened mm. as you explore the world of the upper class. <laughs> I can't say no more, except if you like the themes of John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness, about where the line of art and insanity lie, then this will excite you. Chapter 6. Angel's Thirst. This story is the most adventurous of the three, in my opinion. Uh, this adventure takes place in Los Angeles in the 1920s. Now, imagine this. Your investigators meet a young woman trying to find her father, a taxi driver who has disappeared. His taxi was found abandoned, and the police are too busy trying to deal with the mob to find him. But in her dream, she could see him telling her not to find him, that he is trapped in some strange city, and that monsters will get her if she doesn't forget him. And the plot gets deeper, and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Chapter 7, A God's Dream. This story takes place in modern-day Chicago, and is the most surreal of the three, dealing with witches, time travel, strange worlds, and more. <laughs> the most I can say, about, say without spoiling it is that an investigator needs the player's help with, with something he saw on the walls of a house. And when you go meet him, he's gone. And when you find out what happened to him, there's no way he can be there. Uh, 
<laughs> that's all I can say without spoiling it. <laughs> oh, that sounds great. <laughs> yeah, all three adventures are excellent. A God's Dream, in my opinion, is the hardest to GM out of the three stories. Not because I think it's hard, uh, in the sense of like 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 the, the rules or or the stories are too difficult to understand, or or I feel that experienced GMs will understand this. I just think that this is a, a story that your group has to get it, like has to get your vibe. You know, mm-hmm. you understand your your level of horror and be comfortable with it, because mm. out of, of the three, in my opinion, this is this this story uh, could be out the most. And I can't say why. You're gonna have to read it yourself to find <laughs> out why. What what element I mean by that? But I, I can't say no more. Um, again, you can play each of these separately, but the adventures offers ways to keep them linked together if the keeper and their, and their investigators uh, prefer that. Um, so uh, yeah, again, all three adventures, excellent. It, um, I think, I mean, it seems like each book they put out gets better and better story-wise. But these these were these were excellent. These were great. Excellent. No, I I love this book. Uh, I I love cults. <laughs> um, you know, just because the the creatures of the mythos are so deadly that uh, <laughs> you can't you can't fight the creatures. You kind of have to fight the cultists. Um, and so I love this look into cult, you know, this look into cults. Um, if I had a complaint against this book, it would be uh, that it's only Cthulhu cults. Um, there are so many other cults. Like I, I mentioned uh, Shumnigroth. I, I love the, the black goat. Um, and witches cults and uh, Yogg-Sothoth and all those other cults. Uh, but maybe that's another book. <laughs> And, um, you know, I could hardly ask them to add 300 more pages. So <laughs> I, I always felt that in Call of Cthulhu that, yeah, there's monsters in there. Um, yeah, there's there's the gods. Um, but it's, it's, the, it's the humans that work for them are the most scariest thing about the adventures. So I'm glad that uh, this book is out there to help uh, keepers kind of um, flesh out some of their uh, adventure ideas. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a great book. And uh, if you're a keeper... Uh, you should definitely pick this one up. Yes. A big tentacle up. <laughs> <laughs> well, everyone, thank you for, for watching. Um, let us know what, you, if you've read the book, let us know what you think in the comments below. Uh, stay safe out there. <laughs> Have a good day.